Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and to the end of chapter 9, beginning at verse 36, and into chapter 10 to verse 7. We won't have a detailed exposition of this passage, but we will be drawing truths from it for our edification. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, this evening we come to the conclusion of a public fast day, a fast day which was appointed by our presbytery in anticipation of the ordination and induction uh, of a man in Opelika, Alabama, uh, this Friday evening. And the Presbytery did that because it is part of the practice of our denomination. But that practice is based upon the Word of God and draws upon the apostolic patterns that are given to us in, in the Word. And so you think, for example, of um, Acts chapter 13, and in verse 2, it says, And they ministered to the Lord and, and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So we see the connection between fasting and prayer and the setting apart of men there. We see it elsewhere in Acts 14, verse 23. And <clears throat> when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And we see similar things even with the deacons in Acts chapter 6, the opening of that chapter. And so this is the pattern the Lord's given to us, that it is an appropriate occasion uh, to set aside time and to devote ourselves with concentration, to humble ourselves and to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting uh, for his blessing uh, upon this pursuit of setting apart man for the gospel ministry. And because that's the occasion for which we gather this evening, uh, I direct your attention to the passage that we've just read because it ties together some of these themes 
prayer, concentrated prayer, and the sending forth of laborers into the harvest, and so on. So we'll look together at chapter 9, verse 36, through the opening of chapter 10. And the first thing that we see is the cry, the cry for laborers. In verses 36, 37, and 38, but note especially verse 38, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So the cry for laborers. What is, what is prayer? Prayer is the offering up of our desires unto the Lord. And here God is instructing his church that they are to pray uh, that he would supply men that would labor in the ministry of the word. And behind the instruction that comes to the disciples and to the church more broadly and comes all the way down to us as a church in our own day is actually Christ's own example. So you look, for, you look at uh, Luke chapter 6, and there in verse 12, this is immediately prior to his, to his calling the, the 12 disciples. We read in Luke 6 verse 12, And it came to pass in those days that he, that is Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And then it speaks about who those, who those disciples were. And so we have a pattern that is displayed for us in the Lord himself. Now, there are many, many references to the Lord Jesus Christ praying. And we hear about him praying extensively. He prays very early. He's up early in the morning praying. Other occasions we hear him, you know, up into the night watches where he's praying. This is the only occasion where it actually explicitly says, says that he prayed all night. But here he is devoting himself to, to this work of prayer in connection with all of the instruction that he would give to his disciples and sending them, them forth. So we said that prayer, as our catechism teaches us, is the offering up of the desires of our heart uh, to, to the Lord. And so where is the desire here? Where is the desire in Christ's example? Where is the desire? How do we identify it in the instruction that he gives here at the end of Matthew chapter 9? Well, we, we recognize that most of the time desire is driven by a sense of need. We, we want something because at least we are persuaded that we need something. And therefore, we, we desire it. And so there's, there's motivation. Where, well, what is that motivation? What's the desire that's being offered up? Well, you'll notice how uh, Jesus specifies that the motive is love for souls. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And so he is moved. His heart is affected by, with compassion, for the sight of the need of souls, of perishing sinners, of men who were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he says, this is one of the reasons that drives us to pray, because men and women, boys and girls, need the word of God to be brought to them and to preach to them. So you think to yourself, why, why do you pray? Why do you pray for these specific things, for uh, the Lord to raise up ministers? But it applies to other things as well. Why do you pray? And why is it that you sometimes do not pray? And why is it that this 
particular issue of raising up laborers, that cry is less frequently featuring in your prayers than perhaps other things? Well, the answer becomes obvious based on what we've just heard. It's because it reflects our desires. And our desires are a manifestation of where we see need. And so what's needed for us then is a sight. Jesus saw the multitudes. We have to recognize it. We have to see that there are, whether it's domestically here in our own country or whether it's on the foreign field in other nations, we have to look with our eyes and recognize that there are real people like us, right? Immortal souls with real lives and who have heaven to be won, uh, a soul to be won or lost, heaven gained or, or hell. And that has to sink deep into the bosom of our, our very souls. And it's when it does, then like the Lord Jesus Christ, we're moved with compassion. We see the need that creates a desire and it issues forth in the prayers like Jesus calls for in this particular case. In a sense, you see at least three things coming together. There is the need, there's, there's, there's sheep, right? There's, there's sheep that are, that are out there, they're scattered, they're with, without a shepherd. So there's the first component is need. But then added to that is the magnitude of the need. Jesus says in verse 37, the harvest truly is plenteous. And so the magnitude further reinforces it. And then the third component, which is added to the other two, is the, is the paucity, right? He says the laborers, in verse 37, are few. And so these three things together are what motivate and drive the Lord's people and the church throughout the ages to pray for these things. We know that God uses means for the salvation of sinners. It's through the preaching of the gospel that sinners are saved. We know that he uses means for the advance of his kingdom, and those means include men. Those means include men, which are given as gifts to his church and given as gifts to particular congregations. Right? You can have a congregation without a settled minister, and they're, they're having supply, and they, they get supply every Lord's Day and Wednesday night, and different men are coming through, and that's wonderful, and that's helpful. We're grateful for that, right? There's, there's preaching. The ordinance of preaching is, is being maintained. That's not the same as having a minister of the congregation, and the same thing can be true for ministers, right? Ministers can have an itinerant ministry, and so they're going from place to place to place to place to place, and they're preaching, and they're serving, you know, in the ministry of the word, but they don't actually have a congregation, right? That's different than being a pastor, minister of a particular congregation. And so my point is that, that the Lord uses means he supplies for his church, but he does so for specific churches and with regards to specific men in his infinite wisdom. But there's, there's further motives that are given in this cry for laborers as well. And that is the reference in verse 37 um, to the harvest, right? This, this reflects the desire for the advance of the kingdom. Jesus gives us this as one of the first three uh, in, the, in the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Um, he gives us this in those first three, all of which pertain to himself, 
And he says, we're to pray, thy kingdom come. So this is at the top of our priority lists. Our desire is for the advance of Christ's kingdom. Why? Well, we ask for what we value. And so for the believer, we value the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask for things pertaining uh, to that, that kingdom. We pray, thy kingdom come. And so there's this further motivation within the heart of the believer. Jesus said that we are to seek first the kingdom of God, not second, third, fourth, fifth, not just making sure that it appears on the to-do list or features somewhere in our life. He says, seek first the kingdom. One of the ways that we seek first that kingdom is through sowing in prayers. We actually are making a positive investment in the kingdom, a concrete, tangible investment in the kingdom through prayer. And so we, we may think to ourselves, well, you got missionaries and they're, they're, they're working in the kingdom and you have, you know, members of the congregation are involved in various acts of service and, and seeking the, the things that the Lord has put before them. All of that's part of, of the kingdom. And we can easily overlook the fact that what is done in the secret place and what is done in the public assembly of God's people regarding prayer is one of the primary means he uses to advance his kingdom. Why else would he put it as one of the petitions? Why else would he tell us to pray, thy kingdom come? If it weren't for the fact that this was a means of grace, this is a means that the Lord uses to bring forward his kingdom. As we read elsewhere, often the case is we have not because we ask not. We don't see the kingdom advancing in all of the ways that we would like because we are not asking like we ought and not with the earnestness and perseverance that we ought. And as I said recently, we have not because we ask not. We can take that a step further. We ask not because we want not or we want it not enough to refuse to take no for an answer. And that's appropriate for the Christian to refuse to take no for an answer from the Lord regarding the advance of his kingdom. Why is that appropriate? Because he is the one who has willed it. And he is the one who has commanded us to pray for it, to ask for it in his, in his name. So you have this motivation of, of kingdom advance. So you begin to see, okay, we understand why we have this apostolic principle and practice of fasting and prayer in connection with the setting apart of men by ordination and induction to office. Why is it that we were fasting today? Why is it that we had all the additional times of worship and of prayer and so on? The answer is because we are starving for God's blessing and provision. We are spiritually starving for the Lord to grant our heart's desire in the concrete advance of his kingdom and bringing down his blessing upon the setting apart of a man who is being thrust by Christ himself into the vineyard. With that, of course, is coupled a measure of earnest thanksgiving as well, that, that what's happening Friday is one of many answers to the prayers that we've, that we've asked previously. 
that should buoy up our faith. We, we think about Friday, it should put wind in our sails to say, here's the Lord answer. We've asked for this and here he is providing it. And therefore fuel uh, our, our prayers uh, even more. And so we're fasting and praying because we're starving for the Lord's blessing upon his, his kingdom. And we recognize that only God can give these things. Men can't make ministers. Presbyteries don't make ministers. Only the Lord can give ministers. Therefore, we must seek it from him. There's no factory for men that are truly called. We must seek it from the Lord's own hand. And so Christ himself does it. Christ himself sought from the Father help, blessing, direction, wisdom, that the Lord would own these labors with regards to the 12 disciples. When Jesus went to prayer, he had no sins to confess. But he needed and was driven by this cry to God for many things, including for, for laborers. Well, how much more do we need this ourselves? So this strips, us, it strips away, doesn't it? Much more, like we've preached on this passage or a parallel one before the end of, of Matthew 9, there's, there's, there's much more that could be said, but it strips away self-confidence, doesn't it? It strips away self-confidence. We don't take self-confidence in men. We don't take self-confidence in, uh, in skills or in decisions that are being made. All of our confidence is being, all of the weight of our confidence is being placed in the Lord himself. And a day of prayer and fasting is a reflection of that, that we're transferring all of the weight to him and saying, it has to be the Lord or nothing. The Lord has to do these things and bless these things and own these things and prosper these things or it's nothing. And that expression of faith is born out in prayer. Prayer is that expression of, of trust. And of course, we pray we pray also for the word which is carried forward in the preaching of the gospel. And think of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us. That's the ministers. That the word of, of the Lord, that's their preaching, may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. You get the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6, where the apostle Paul is giving the, the, the various pieces of the armor. And he says in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching whereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So we're praying for the Lord to, to send forth his word, his own word, the heralding of the gospel with power and the spirit and demonstration of, of God's presence among his people. So we begin, first of all, with the cry, the cry for laborers. Secondly, we have the call of laborers, the call of laborers. And you see that in verses one to four, He's the reference here to his 12 disciples or 12 apostles, which are uh, named in this in this particular section. We recognize that Christ, if we're asking the Lord for men, 
then we recognize that Christ must be the one to call those men. Christ must call. Otherwise, men run unsent, which has been a common occurrence since the days of the prophets and the New Testament and throughout the ages. Right? Those running unsent with, without a, a call. So Christ must call them. And you notice this is part of what Jesus is doing. The Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnate ministry here on earth, he did not just come for, to spend three years preaching and teaching. He did that, right? He, he was preaching and teaching constantly in the synagogue, on the hill, hillside, and in various places along the sea shore, and so on and so forth. He was preaching and teaching, and he was doing miracles and casting out demons and so on and so forth. But that's not all. During those three years, he was actually training men. And these disciples went through what amounts to the premier seminary education ever known to man. They sat at the feet of the God-man himself and were taught of him and mentored uh, by him, instructed uh, from him. And so Jesus was training men during that period in order that having equipped them, and subsequently endowed them with the Holy Spirit, they in turn might turn around and also train men for the, to the same end. And then they are in like form are being used so that those who are trained by them would train men. So you get Paul, who is now writing to Timothy, which is another tier down, and he's telling Timothy, you know, commit thou to faithful men, the things that you've received, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2. right? So there's this pattern that's being uh, established here. And so Christ prayed alone. We saw that in Luke 6. He also chose alone these, these men. And so it's interesting in various places that the, the 12 are referred to as those chosen by him, not just in the Gospels, in the opening of of Acts uh, 1, you still see it being used where, and beyond that in verse 2, where it says, uh, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Right, That sort of language comes up. Chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ alone has the authority. Christ alone has the authority. He uses means, right? So, you, you have the apostles appointing uh, ministers of the gospel. You have them, you know, presbyteries doing the same. Paul speaks about the gifts that Timothy received in the laying, hand, laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The Lord is employing these means that he's appointed, but it is ultimately Christ's authority that is being mediated through the ordained ordinances and structures that he's established. And it is his original authority that lies behind and is being executed or carried out in the, in the call of, of men. And so you see these 12, these first 12, the 12 disciples or, or um, apostles, you, you, Christ has the authority to call them. You see the exercise of that authority in other ways. He comes to Simon and says, I'm changing your name. Jesus changing his name is an expression of authority. Right? That is, Adam was given authority to name the animals. God exercised the authority to change the name from Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, 
and so on. Jacob to Israel. Right? It's an exercise of divine authority. Here is Christ saying, I'm changing your name from Simon to Peter. So there's authority here. And you, you see that he chooses 12, which is interesting. This is quite a statement, actually. Um, it would have been uh, yeah, a statement to those in the context in which he was dwelling. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you a question. How many county commissioners are there in Greenville County? How many representatives are there in Columbia? You don't know? Neither do I. But I have news for you. Every Jew, from the time they were knee-high to a grasshopper, would know that there were 12 tribes in Israel. They all knew and had that deeply ingrained in their minds that there were 12 tribes in Israel. Here's the Lord Jesus coming, and he's appointing 12 disciples because he is building a new Israel over which he himself will, 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 will reign as, as head. You look at the diversity of, of these men. You know, some have Semitic names, others have Greek names. We have two of them called James, two of them called Judas. Different gifts, different strengths, different personalities. It's in fact, mark, markedly different strengths and weaknesses and personalities and gifts and graces. I mean, in the first batch, those first 12 under the Lord's own hand, what remarkable diversity. I mean, you have some of them were brilliant, like the Apostle John, right, who's called historically John the, the theologian for a reason, right, the depth that we have in the Gospel of John and so on and so forth. You have Peter, who is phenomenally bold, impetuous at times, but bold, and, and so on. You have the skills of James in leadership and, and, and whatnot. And it, 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 it points forward to the fact this will always be the case, that the Lord is, with his own authority, calling men uh, into the gospel ministry, and there will be a great diversity, different strengths, different weaknesses, different personalities, different gifts, and so on and so forth. We should expect that. We should expect the opposite of a cookie-cutter sort of approach, right? If there wasn't a cookie-cutter with the first 12 and those they appointed, how will there ever be subsequently? That's not how the Lord's appointed it. There needs to be the, the richness of, of this diversity. But there are men who were not connected, if you will, in terms of socio-political standing, right? They were little of little social consequence, but they were appointed by the Lord himself. And that's what matters, right? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen Yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So this is, this too is part of the pattern that the Lord gives us the call, in terms of the calling of, of laborers. And of course you recognize that among the twelve, there was one included, which gives pause, Judas Iscariot. 
12 disciples, one of which was a reprobate, one of which was lost. John 6, verse 64 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ knew this from the beginning. And so he held an outward office, but the Lord knew that he was the son of perdition. Here is Judas Iscariot. He heard the Sermon in the Mount live. He was there at the feet of Jesus, drinking in the best preaching that the world's ever known. He was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and saw it with his own eyes. He was there and saw Jesus walk upon the sea and feed the 5,000. We can begin multiplying all the other things, right? Judas was there. He saw all of this. Why? Because he didn't just show up in the morning and spend a few hours with our Lord at school, as it were. He slept with him and ate with him and traveled with him day in and day out for three years. And what's more, he preached. Judas went out and preached like the others did and even engaged in miraculous works and so on. But Judas was unconverted. Judas was lost. Judas is in hell. He was damned. You can have privileges and even position without ever having personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The office of apostle could not save him. Even the office of apostle and no office can save any man. It is a grief to say it, but there are many Bible-believing Protestant ministers in hell as we speak. And so this initial batch, these 12, also sets our expectations that there is, there is not, people's faith is not shipwrecked and absolutely unhinged to discover that there are men who have run unsent. That's one thing. Some of them can be converted. Men who have run unconverted. Right? You'll remember the, the language of, of Luke 10. In Luke 10, the Lord has sent out the 70 to preach and to do the works that he's appointed for them. And they come back in verse in verse 17, and the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ says. These are basically the words that Lloyd-Jones used on his death better, ones similar to them. Verse 20, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are are written in heaven. It's the greatest source of joy is not all of the accomplishments that they were involved in. The greatest joy was the fact that their souls were converted, that they belonged to the Lord. And so you have these 12 disciples and they're called by the Lord. And then there's with them, there's 70. So Acts 10 is talking about that. The 70 who were also raised up in Jesus when he sends them out. It's all this language of making haste. They're to go quickly. They're to go lightly. They're to, they're to be in earnest. They're to be driving forward with the commission that the Lord has given to them. That he's given them 
authority. You even see it here in, in Matthew 10 when it speaks about he gave them. Christ gave it. He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, heal all manner of diseases, and so on and so forth. He's the one who, who, as the ascended Christ now, has all power and authority, and he alone conveys it. The power and authority, the capability and ability, and the right to carry out the work that he gives. And this goes on and on, doesn't it, from Matthew 28 and into the, into the epistles and places like Ephesians 4, where the Lord is, as the ascended Christ, giving uh, offices to his church, for the edification of his body and so on. So we, first of all, we have the cry for laborers. Secondly, we have the call for, for laborers, the call of laborers. And then thirdly, we have the commission of laborers. Thirdly, the commission of laborers, verses 5, 6, and 7. Then uh, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and so on. Verse, um, verse 7, and as ye go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were given a commission to preach. Jesus, verse 5, sent them forth. The, the, the language is that of being thrust out with, with strength, right? He's driving them out with strength. He's thrusting them forth and commanding them to go and to preach. That whole idea of Jesus sent forth is what's behind the word apostle, right? The, the word itself, the word apostle means sent one, one who has been sent. And so he commands them and he, he, he calls them to, to preach. They're to be witnesses. They're to be ambassadors. They're to be heralds. And this is something that is non-optional. It's not take it or leave it. It's not, well, maybe you get around to it on occasion, but this is the bread and butter of what he's called them to do. And it remains the case with the gospel ministry throughout the ages. What Paul, when Paul says, woe unto me, if I preach not the gospel, that sense of constraint, that obligation is tied to the commission and command that the Lord gives to go and preach his word. And so the idea of having ministers who aren't preaching ministers. So they're the administrative minister, or they're the music minister, or they're the fill-in-the-blank minister, is foreign to what the scripture says. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. This is what the gospel ministry is preeminently and first and foremost all about. Going as a herald, as an ambassador, the primary task Woe if we neglect those appointed ordinances that the Lord has given to us. Because the, these men are being sent as representatives of Christ himself. This is why he can say, if they don't receive you, they don't receive me. If they receive you, they receive me. Well, how can that be? Because they're representing the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ambassadors in that sense. They're coming from the throne room of the king and saying, thus saith the king of heaven. And to repudiate that is to repudiate the king of heaven and his, his word. Now, the apostles, of course, were more. They were, they were instruments of vehicles for divine revelation as well in terms of giving us the, the pages, the inspired text of the New Testament, which the last 2,000 years the church has been dependent upon. 
Right? We, we speak of Christian truth as apostolic doctrine. Why? Because it's the doctrine delivered by the Holy Ghost through divine inspiration and through the apostles in the scriptures. So it's apostolic doctrine. Because the church is built, as Ephesians 2.20 says, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So the foundation is laid upon the apostolic truth that was given by God through them. Or you think of Revelation 21. You know, I mentioned this past Lord's Day, the Lord's Day before, how the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are on the gates uh, described on the gates of the New Jerusalem. But the 12 apostles are described as the foundation, right? Names on the foundation of, of the New Jerusalem, which fits with Ephesians 2.20 and so on. This congregation, Greenville Presbyterian Church, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, upon apostolic doctrine and, and truth. And so he's commissioning them. And he, he gives them, you know, you see this with the 70 as well. He gives them warnings. They're going to be hated. You know, not everybody's going to do jumping jacks and backflips and clap and applause and, and hoot and holler with, with joy over the message of preaching the kingdom of, of God. Not at all. Despite the fact that that message is gospel is good news, indeed the best news that the world has ever known, supplying the worst problem that the world has ever known. Despite that fact, their message will be hated and they as messengers will be hated. And so these 12 disciples were hated, they were hated by the Jews because they're preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And they hated them and what they were saying. They were hated by the Romans, by the Gentiles, because they came preaching that Jesus was Lord, that he alone is Lord, not Caesar, but that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And they didn't like that either. And so there was going to be reaction. Jesus tells them elsewhere that he sends them out among wolves. Right? This is dangerous. It's going to require courage. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require a lot of things, it may cost them their lives, and indeed it did cost them. Almost all of them, save John, cost them their lives. And so they're to preach the kingdom, that is the gospel, the kingdom. They're to preach the reign of God, the, the divine reign of God, the reign of Jesus Christ in the world through the gospel, through the good news that he is the sovereign Lord, has come as Savior in order to redeem poor, helpless, hell-deserving sinners like all of us. And so they were to go out with this commission to preach. And they and we and everyone else is to water that with prayer. And we're to pray. The ministers themselves are to be given to prayer and the ministry of the Word, right? Acts 6-4. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. The people are to pray for the same. And of course, this hatred and animosity, which is at times is, is the case, in fact, is the, is the default response of everyone 
apart from God's sovereign grace and intervention. Everyone rejects the gospel unless the Lord sovereignly and graciously interposes in order to make it efficacious. And so the effect that would happen is they would have to, as, as, as we're told, there were times where they, have to t they would have to shake the dust off their feet in the gates as a public testimony uh, against them, right? The, the, the coming and preaching is, a, is, is with a gracious intent, but rejecting it is rejecting Christ. Who cares about the 12 disciples in a sense? Who cares about those who come as, as the servants of Christ and the servants of the word who are nobodies with nothing in and of themselves? They're just passing along and proclaiming the message of the king himself. Who cares about them? It's not the fact that they are being rejected. To reject the men, on the grand scheme of things, apart from you know, points of divine authority, etc., would not be that significant. What is very significant is that it is a rejection of Jesus Christ. And that ought to send chills up and down our spines. It ought to send chills up and down the spines of the Lord's people as they think of unbelieving family and friends in terms of their rejection of Christ himself. For those of you who are unconverted, this should be a not tingling up and down your spine. It should be a bolt of lightning through your forehead. To repudiate the gospel, to, to refuse to believe the gospel, to not come under the gospel, to not rejoice over the good news of the gospel, to not flee to Christ and lay hold of him, is to reject him. And the consequences are that those who die in such a state appear before the throne upon which that Christ, that rejected Christ sits as judge of all the earth. And he, with all power and authority, will be the one who is, who is rending the ultimate verdict, not you. You feel as if you have the power to render the verdict as to whether you will believe the gospel or not. But the final verdict comes from him when he says, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. But thanks be unto his name, he comes to you this evening and continues to come, sending his word through men whom he has commissioned to preach the gospel. And in doing so, Christ himself stands in his word and in the ordinance of gospel preaching. And he is the one who holds out his arms all day long, calling helpless, self-deserving sinners like you to come to him, to come, to be received by him, that he will by no means cast out any who come to him by faith. Well, this commission is to be taken to the ends of the world. He says, go disciple the nations. Yes, they go out ones and twos to preach, and people are converted, in the case of the apostles, hundreds and thousands. In other cases, ones and twos. But ultimately, it's with a view to discipling whole nations. And so the church has been engaged in this, in, in this enterprise for 2,000 years. 
The church has continued to penetrate deeper and deeper into the various recesses of, of the world. And Christ has continued as the exalted king to listen for the cry of his people for laborers. And he has continued from heaven to call men in response to those prayers and to then commission those men to thrust them out into the vineyard, which is white and ready to be reaped. And in doing so, to add his blessing in the conversion of sinners. That's why people like us, who are so radically different, geographically, ethnically, language, everything else, from those who are described in, in Matthew chapter 10. It's why people like us are gathered in public worship this evening at the end of a fast day. The likes of us continuing the cry, Lord, hear us, we're in dead earnest. We're setting apart a day to fast, to refrain from these things because we are starving for something more than food. We want the kingdom to come with power. We want the blessing of God upon our own presbytery and all that transpires on Friday for the Lord to own these things for his own glory. May he hear that cry and answer it to his praise. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, the Lord of the harvest, the one with all power and authority who is able to call and commission men. O Lord, we pray, grant to us that the heavens would be opened and blessings would be poured out in sending forth a whole army of men. Raise them up, O Lord, in, the, in these days and in the generations that are rising and send them forth one by one with the authority of Christ himself and with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of free grace. And Lord, we pray, bless our presbytery and this Friday as we come to the ordination and induction of a man to the office of the ministry. O oh Lord, we pray, own it, bless it. Grant that this commission from Christ himself uh, would be made fruitful to the glory of the Redeemer. For we ask it in his name. Amen.